Hello, welcome to the Primordial Soup Pot. My name is Aaron Johnson. And I am the co-host. I am Rustin Perret. We're two college friends who like to get together and discuss natural history, ecology, and evolution. Every two weeks, we pick a theme and each one of us tells a different story. And the episode for today is Halloween. It's the Halloween special. Yes, we're very excited to tell you all about the Halloween topics that we have researched for this episode. So I think, Aaron, did you go first last week? Uh, I, I don't recall. All right, well, why don't you go ahead and get us started off, since neither of us can remember. I'll divvy us out. So, Halloween, that's a time of ghouls, goblins, and monsters, am I right? Of course, of course. So, I thought, what are, like, the boogeymen in the field of biology? Hepatitis. No, uh, I'm going to talk about cryptids. All right, sounds good. So, I will say, I love the idea of cryptids, but I don't actually believe in any of them because it's more or less a load of bullshit right sure highly improbable for a lot of them when you really break it down so like loch ness monster bigfoot chupacabra there's really just no good evidence we don't have any fossil remains not to mention there have to be a population of them to actually survive so it wouldn't just be one right for all of the people out there who may not know what a cryptid is, that and that definitely doesn't include me, what exactly is a cryptid? A cryptid is like the tinfoil hat wears. It's, they say it's an animal that isn't recognized by science. It's Bigfoot, Loch Ness Monster, Yetis. Okay. Stuff that, right. you know, doesn't exist. But I like to think that in all of them, there is a kernel of truth to it. For example, the Kraken doesn't exist, but giant squids do. And for all intents and purposes, that's pretty close. Okay. Now, the myths of them attacking boats and taking them down to the depths of the ocean, not likely. But, I mean, what are the odds that someone saw a dead giant squid floating in the water one day? Right. Well, weren't there all kinds of stories about how sailors would see, like, manatees and think they were mermaids? Like, what, isn't that where that came from? Yeah, I think manatees were the inspiration for uh, mermaids. I haven't read too much into that, but my theory is just they're on a boat with all dudes. They're horny. <laughs> You're probably right. <laughs> they're horny, just... they're probably malnourished, and they're probably drunk, too, because you can't keep water sanitary on a boat. The, these are all true facts. I'm just thinking about about how much different the story of the Little Mermaid would be if Ariel was a freaking manatee. <laughs> Imagine a manatee with legs. <laughs> it just, would it just be a cow, or would it kind of have weird flippers, like just flopping around in the things? I don't know, but I'm just imagining the the song "Part of Your World," part of that world, like being just about how much she wants to eat grass instead of seaweed. <laughs> She doesn't even care about the dude. I don't remember his name. Prince something. Was it Eric? Yeah, I think it was Eric. Yeah, she looks like, locks eyes with him, turns, sees a pasture, and then the rest of the movie just eats grass. (laughs) Wait, didn't she have, didn't she give up her voice in that movie? Am I remembering that correctly? Yeah, yeah, she did. Yeah, aside from the obvious misogyny associated with that, um, why, why is that misogynistic? She had a pretty voice. That was the trade-off. 
Sure, but there's like the whole like women shouldn't speak and they should just like sit still and be silent and look pretty thing associated with that. I don't know. I haven't seen the movie in years. I'm probably not going to see the new one either. Neither am I, but I have read about it on multiple Reddit message boards. And uh, oh yeah, well, <laughs> that's how you know you're getting quality information. <laughs> of course. <laughs> okay, so ordinarily, I'd say that a lot of claims about cryptids, there's just nothing to them. However, this case is different because this is a cryptid that has been documented to have killed several people. Okay. So I'm going to be talking about the Beast of Jevedon. I might have heard about this, but keep going. This sounds really cool. So I guess technically this is going to be a true crime podcast now. Okay. And which part of France is this, like, geographically? Uh, Jevedon, wherever that is. It's rural. It's the countryside, I can tell you that much. It is a very forested region. Just we'll roll with that. That's all I can tell you. Okay, it's it's southern France. Okay, southern France. So what's interesting? Okay, so what's interesting about the beast is it actually seemed to prefer to attack women and children, and it didn't even always eat its victims. It was very keen on ripping heads off. Okay. Yeah, not every account has the beast actually eating the person afterwards. It was fond of just tearing heads off. And usually it always attacks someone alone. So this was usually a shepherd or a farmer or one of their kids. What if this beast was just actually like a giant female praying mantis? Well, that's probably the weirdest explanation. And I have a whole like page of possible explanations. That's probably the, the only one no one thought of. No one's thought of that? I don't think they would. I wonder why. So descriptions of the beast vary widely. I mean, it's almost like no two people has the exact same story. You have to keep in mind that in the 18th century, you have a lot of things working against this. So A, peasants have poor education. Okay. B, they don't have a lot of... They haven't seen the world, so they can't really describe things very well. So they're inevitably going to say the body of a dog and the head of a pig. That's what they've seen. You know, they can't really compare it to a kangaroo. They have no idea what that is. Stuff like that. Right. And they also didn't have a great understanding of zoology either. So you'll see a lot of mishmash drawings where it's a giant dog. Now it has scales. It breathes fire. It's a man with a pig head, etc. And also the press kind of ran wild with this. And it was also exaggerated due to public hysteria and stress from the war. So all these factors kind of gave you a hodgepodge of all kinds of different depictions of the beast. It was said to range in size from a large dog to that of a horse. It walked on all fours. Sometimes it had larger front limbs and a hunchback. And some people also claimed that it ran on two legs but was hunched over, so it was bipedal. It was said to have a pointed mouth full of teeth or sometimes a pig-like snout, a rusty brown in color, and a white belly, and sometimes had a large tufted tail. Some said it was part leopard, some said it was part lion or hyena, some said it had a black stripe, etc. It was said to have spines the signs of baguettes and teeth like croissants. <laughs> wait actually no (laughs) (laughs) okay but (laughs) 
based on some of the crazy shit you've already described about this supposed beast, that doesn't seem too far out of the realm of possibility, does it? <laughs> Not necessarily. And like I said, variations of this exist so many because of newspapers. And a big issue with that is there's a lack of scientific illustrations at the time. Like, just go back to, like, 15th century and look at drawings of, like, elephants. Right. And they don't look like an elephant because people don't really know what they look like. They're getting secondhand accounts. Agreed. But instead of saying that there's a lack of scientific illustrations, I think you can just say there's a lack of science. Yes. Yeah, that goes all the way around. Well, no, we were still in the period where... You know, people are at least trying to make advances in it. But, I mean, there's no photographs. So that's going to be an issue. Like, I remember I went to an art museum once, and I forget the painting. But it was a man being attacked by a shark. And I believe the man commissioned the painting, and he survived the ordeal. I think he lost an arm, if I remember the tour correctly. And the way the shark was painted, the painter had never really seen a shark close up. So he gave it tiger eyes and whiskers, because he thought that's what sharks look like. So he took the idea of a tiger shark quite literally. Yeah, maybe maybe there's a bit of an issue in translation there. <laughs> and I mean, it was a huge painting too, so it's not like he can redo it, you know. Yeah, it's just like it's just like an Eastern European guy describing his shark attack to, you know, some random French guy and things get mixed up in the middle, you know. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, the eyes of the shark. <laughs> <laughs> I shall give it whiskers. Uh, I will ruin your shark, you cocksucker. <laughs> Takes a drag of his cigarette. <laughs> you wanted the shark, I gave you the cat. For anyone listening in the future, this is officially where we lost our audience in Brussels. Yeah. <laughs> uh, okay, so anyways, the attacks continued through 1764, and like I said, the beast seemed to prefer attacking lone shepherds or farmers, often ignoring the livestock and usually rip their heads off either before or after they were eaten. Sometimes it did not even seem to eat the victims. And unfortunately, French peasants were not allowed to own firearms at the time. So they're arming themselves with pitchforks and torches. So like even then, it's still a pretty even fight if you're going one-on-one against a wolf. Yeah, yeah, you have you, you have the benefits of human ingenuity on your side. But not a lot. No. Not not the full benefit of human ingenuity, just like half of it. As the attacks grew, posses would form to try and find the beast, but unsuccessful. So I okay. mentioned earlier how France was in a rough spot after losing the Seven Years' War. This is really important because at the time the king was censoring a lot of political news. Doesn't want to look bad, obviously. So the newspapers all covered the beast instead. So everyone knew about this. Oh, So okay. this was really blown out of proportion. And a lot of interesting stories came from these attacks. In August of 1765, a young woman fought off and impaled the beast with a bayonet fixed to a long pole. Uh, apparently that didn't kill it, though. And there's still a statue in France today called the Virgin of Gévaudan showing her fending off the beast with like a spear. Damn, good for her. On January 12th, a group of schoolboys were attacked, and one of them grouped the kids together, and they chased it off with sticks. And the king of France paid them each the equivalent of, 
if I converted it right, sixty thousand U.S. dollars in today's money each, and then wow. the uh, the boy that led the effort, the king just paid for his education altogether. Damn. Yeah, rags and riches stories right there. Damn, and, okay. of course, like I said, France was not in a great spot, so the king saw this as an opportunity to boost his reputation by sending some troops to finally put the beast to rest. So, like I said, a bounty was put on the beast's head, drawing in many from across the country and neighboring countries as well to try and find it. One of the people was a young Lafayette, who I think was just like a teenager at the time. Hmm. As in, you know, the uh, Revolutionary War, America's favorite Frenchman, Alexander Hamilton play. You mean Hamilton? Oh, yeah, Hamilton. Okay, so it goes like Lafayette, and I think he raps. Yeah. There's rapping throughout the entire play, man. You got to be a little bit more specific. It was a rapping by Lafayette. Uh, for all I know, he might have talked about trying to kill the beast in there. <laughs> so the first man the king sent was Captain Duhamel. And his men were sent to slay the beast. Man, I hope I pronounced that right. They were unsuccessful. Apparently, they had many opportunities to shoot at it, but they always seemed to miss. So they deserved to have their names mispronounced because they couldn't actually kill the beast. Yeah, I guess so. They couldn't do it. Uh, at one point, the captain ordered all of his men to dress up as women in hopes to act as bait for it. And that did not work. I think the main issue was he had huge hunting parties. Like, any predator in the area is going to be gone. Like, at one time, they had a group of almost 30,000 volunteers. Not only one group, but just throughout the region. Any animal is going to hear you coming and run away. Also, I love that, I love that their idea to actually capture this thing is to host, like, the 18th century version of RuPaul's Drag Race in the middle of the French countryside. <laughs> there was the bait. How could the beast resist? They love ripping the heads off of women. <laughs> I'd love to see that episode of RuPaul's Drag Race just once. <laughs> so the soldiers all threw up their white flags and the king sent in the next team. All right. He sent two professional wolf hunters, one of which has the most French name I've ever heard in my entire life. Are you ready for this? It's going to sound far less French when you say it, but go ahead. Jean-Charles Marc-Antoine Vamosel de Neval. Yeah, that's pretty goddamn French. And his son, Jean-Francois. I don't know. I think his son's got him beat. Jean-Francois is pretty fucking French. Uh, they operated more stealthily, just the two of them, and they utilized hunting dogs. Now, these guys were, like I said, professional wolf hunters, and they actually did not believe it was one monster. They thought it was just a bad wolf problem. And because of this, they weren't like, it was kind of controversial. Everyone thought it was one animal instead. And after all the press said it was just one animal, they didn't want to undermine that. So these guys, I think they killed a couple wolves, maybe several, but the king kind of dismissed them. So then he finally sent in Francois Antoine, who is an officer and gun bearer to the king to kill it. And Antoine eventually killed a large gray wolf measuring 31 inches tall, 5 feet 7 inches long, and weighing about 130 pounds. Damn. Okay. That is a big dog. That is a very big dog, yeah. And they got some survivors to confirm that the wolf was the culprit. Some stated that this wolf had scars that matched with wounds survivors inflicted in self-defense. Damn. Okay. All right. So the body was shipped back to 
uh, the palace. But Antoine actually stayed behind because he killed the wolf's mate and the offspring as well and sent that back to the palace. And they were examined. And it is worth noting, remember this, keep in your back pocket, that one of them had an extra dew claw. A dew claw? I'll get to that later. Keep in your back pocket. But what is it? What is a dew claw? A dew claw is if you look at a dog's paw, you'll have, of course, the toes at the end. The dew claw is further back, kind of along the side of it. It's a little nub sticking out the side. Oh, okay. And dogs typically only have one, but one of them had two. Remember that. So this dog had like a little extra leg chode. Yeah, a little chode. <laughs> That's the best way to describe it. He's just a little guy. He's just sitting there. He's just sitting there. So everyone thought that's great. The beast is dead. And the king said, the beast is dead. And the media said, the beast is dead. And the body was stuffed, sent to Versailles. Antoine was a hero. The beast was declared dead. Uh, It was passed around for museums until, I believe, the early 20th century when it kind of got lost. It would have been in pretty rough shape by then, even if it was taxidermed. However, two kids were attacked again just a few months later. And then eventually a dozen more deaths were reported. Oh my gosh. And the king ignored the claims that the beast was alive. He said that he was dead. So just straight up willful ignorance, huh? And the death of the beast is finally attributed to a local carpenter named Jean Chastel. Now Jean was actually jailed prior to this for accidentally leading a hunting party into a bog just a year earlier during the hunt for the wolf. Yeah, he was leading the army as a local guide, fucked up, and they threw him in jail for it. All right. Okay, but at least he got... He redeemed himself for sure, right? Yes, he shot the beast, and he's very much a local folk hero in the region, even if, like, uh, the city folks didn't see him as that. A lot of rumors were started about his... So he's like the French equivalent of a country singer. Loved by country folk, but much maligned in the cities. And kills murderous beasts, I guess. Hey, there are some country singers who brag about that stuff, right? (laughs) I killed the beasts of Jevedon. Oh, like I said, there's a lot of rumors started about this, and one of which stated that he had to use a silver bullet to kill it. And this is attributed to starting the werewolf myth, that you need a silver bullet to do it. Oh, okay. I was just about to make a joke about that, but that's actually where it came from. That's awesome. Yeah, for the most part. The animal he shot was brought to the royal palace, but it was ultimately kind of tossed out because they didn't think that was the beast. And some people argued that it wasn't a wolf. They weren't quite exactly sure what they were looking at because I believe it was examined by a mortician in the countryside. You know, he's not a zoology expert. And even then, we're not quite in the huge age of science yet. And I imagine it was also decomposing pretty bad. Probably. So it wasn't really thoroughly examined. It was noted as having four fewer teeth than a wolf, which is, I guess, a little odd. And they did find human remains in the stomach. Okay. But besides that, the body has kind of been lost the time. We don't really know what came of this one, whereas the other wolf was at least kept in the museum for quite a while. And following this, the attack seemed to stop. Just remember... They belong in a museum. It belongs in a museum. And now we ask the question, what was the beast? All right, what was it? Because there's still a lot. uh, We don't even really know what animal was shot the second time fully. 
You know, the first one was a wolf, but it was a weird wolf. Now, let me go through some scenarios, couple possibilities, and I'll start with the most likely ones. And I think the most likely scenario is that there is no one beast. Probably. There's several. At this time in history, wolf attacks were pretty common, and they weren't an unknown occurrence by any means. I think it's likely that France just had a bad year of wolf attacks, and that kind of became lumped into it being one monster. Or maybe it wasn't even that bad of a year for wolf attacks. It was just, you know, so hyped up by the press that was trying to focus on things other than France's current political climate. Yeah, that's the thing. So I did read one source estimated that there had been about tens of thousands of attacks of wolves in all of Europe by the 18th century. So that's still a lot of wolf attacks. But when you combine that with a period of economic recession and political angst following the war, you had a mass hysteria where they kind of hype the beast up to being more monstrous than it actually is, where it's just a bad year for wolf attacks. Maybe even not that bad. Maybe just a little worse than normal. Huh. Okay. And then when the press gets involved and further exaggerates it because that's trendy and that's all anyone's talking about, it's like a positive feedback loop that just keeps evolving a regular wolf attack into something of a monster. Yeah, th- that makes a lot of sense. And based on how frequent these attacks were at the time, it seems impossible that it was just one animal. In fact, most people in the time thought it was a pair of animals at least. All right, so then, so wait. If most people at the time thought it was multiple different animals, then they why... They thought it was a pair specifically. Oh, okay. So, But even then, why why is this cryptid seen as the beast of Gévaudan instead of like... Well, there's more the to beasts. it. It still seems odd that these animals would attack people without always eating them. Yes, agreed. That is Animals strange. don't typically do that. Um, if they're defending a territory, that's one thing. But these were often women and children. They were farming. There was livestock with them. There was one account of attack where the beast came at someone and she kind of herded herself within goats and that saved her from the attack. Huh. I think the goats actually might have scared it off because there's a lot of them. Wow. So one possible explanation is that the wolves might have grown accustomed to scavenging human corpses following battles. Like I said, the recent seven years war. Right. Right. I mean, they're just sitting there. It's a battlefield. You're hungry. Why not? So yeah, I think it's most likely scenario. It's a bad year for wolves. The second is that it was a wolf-dog hybrid. Okay, how is how would that have altered the perception of the animal? Remember, it, as opposed to being just a, a a normal wolf. So remember how I mentioned earlier that one of the wolves that was shot had an extra dew claw of the first wolf family. Yeah, the double chewed. Yeah, the double chode. Well, this is a common trait. Actually, all of them have it in a French breed of dog called Beauceron. Let's go with that. And these were guard dogs. These were livestock dogs. They were very aggressive breeds. So it's possible that some of these dogs had hybridized with wolves and formed a small aggressive hybrid population. If you have a dog breed that is bred to be aggressive, then maybe that's why it's attacking people and not eating them. And this could also account for the larger size that was reported of the beast. Because, wait, so these these guard dogs that you're describing that were aggressive, they were larger than wolves? They weren't larger than wolves, but if you're getting some hybridization going, there could be some sort of anomaly. 
Like I know ligers, for example, which are hybrids of lions and tigers, they are bigger than both. Really? Yeah, they're always bigger than both. Ligers are huge. So that phenomenon could have been happening. And I mentioned earlier how the beast, most accounts said it was like a rusty brown color. Well, that could have been from, there's actually another French guard dog that was kind of like a mastiff, and that was a light brown in color. So it's possible this was a dog-wolf hybrid. Not to mention feral dog attacks were also a thing at the time. So maybe you just got a really aggressive breed and people were approaching on his territory and that's why he was attacking without necessarily eating. Either that or you got these guard dogs going off and getting busy with a local wolf wolf herd. You know, yeah, the they're just pack. sneaking out every night. They're abandoning their posts. Okay, third possibility is an escaped exotic animal. The two notable subjects are a lion or a striped hyena. Yeah. This may seem a little far-fetched. However, it was not uncommon at the time for French aristocrats to have large wild animal collections called menageries. One could potentially escape and go on the hunt for people, especially if this animal was abused by people as well. Okay, but then why would people describe it as more dog-like if it was some form of lion? Well, you have to keep in mind that your average peasant has probably never seen either of these animals in their entire life. But they've seen How, dogs, right? They've seen dogs, but they describe it as dog-like. They don't always say it's a dog because uh, the accounts do vary a lot. So they're basing okay. it off of what they know. They've never seen a lion before. Not to mention a hyena also looks very dog-like. Fair enough, fair enough. So in the case of the hyena... It matches the description where some people said it had a hunched back and longer front limbs. Hyenas also have very strong jaws, which in the wild they utilize for cracking bones because they are scavengers. So they'll crack bones to get into like the femur and the marrow where other animals might not be able to do that. So they have their own niche there. And this would theoretically allow them to sever heads better. I mean, you have to bite through a neck and pull it off. That's kind of sturdy. This is also true. That's why the French later came up with the guillotine. Did the beast inspired them? No, 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 no. Or no. Were the, they... fact, the fact that heads are relatively hard to remove. They weren't having luck biting so... the heads off themselves, so they had to get a guillotine. So there were actually some reports of a hyena being shot in France in 1767. Wow, okay. So there was one out there. And apparently it resembled the animal shot by Jean Chastel, which we don't quite know what it was. Although most people seem to think it's a wolf, they didn't really preserve the body. And it wasn't examined by a professional. So a hyena would look wolf-like. It's also got the right color, as described by many. Okay, so that, that idea maybe isn't quite so preposterous. Yeah, it's not. It sounds like. As for the lion, well, some people said this was massive. Uh, the highest end of the spectrum was horse size, but a lot of people said like cow or small calf size. A lion is certainly bigger than a wolf. Agreed. Yes. It would also have a lighter brown color and some reports said a tufted tail, which a lion would have. And if it was a female or an immature male, it wouldn't have a mane. Or if it was the immature male, it would kind of have uh, a bit of a mohawk kind of that's developing and that could look like a humped back especially if you didn't know how to describe it 
not to mention they'd be strong enough to carry off small children, which it was reported as doing. I mean, they're big. They are strong. Okay, but that still doesn't explain why they're like the like a lion's face looks different than a wolf's. It does, but you have to keep in mind that not everyone survived these attacks. The people that did were frantic. I mean, think about people misidentifying people in a police lineup, you know, and not to mention they don't know if you'd never seen a lion in your life. You'd probably compare it to a wolf because that's the best thing you know to compare it to. But these people had seen like cats, right? Like that, like if I was, if I had never seen a lion, I, I would think that I would compare the face of a lion to that of a cat, right? Some like, drawings are... have the beast cat like. Really? There is a huge range. I mean, some of them look like dragons. <laughs> yeah, they, some people okay. gave it scales. I think we can rule that one out. <laughs> yeah uh, unless the targaryens are attacking rural france i think it's okay uh so it's also worth that's a game the of region. thrones reference by the way you should I know watch the, the show i know their names i know their names okay just those specifically i know house of the dragons a very popular show right now i just haven't watched it you should absolutely watch house of the dragon it has my approval and you can quote me on that no, I don't have HBO Max. Well, I don't know. Uh, although I did borrow my girlfriends for a bit to watch Primal. All right, Primal is a great show. Everyone should watch Primal. I love it. It has my absolute like guarantee you will like it. <sighs> but you still haven't seen Game of Thrones. You realize how many more... Ah, we've touched on this before, but I'm coming back to it. You realize how many more memes you would, un- would understand... If you had seen Game of Thrones. And I don't know where you get your memes from because you don't have any social media besides like a Facebook. For all I know, you're like, oh, wow, I found this one on MySpace. I'm going to mail this to Aaron. I'll enclose a Jolly Rancher in it so he can have a treat. Uh, and a one dollar bill so he can pay rent this month <laughs> the rusted with his rotary phone oh hello Aaron I saw the most delectable meme I must share it with you at once <laughs> tell me are you familiar with Garfield the cat <laughs> oh he's been quite rambunctious today <laughs> I'm sending you a snippet of the Sunday funnies he's got this adorable little dog friend too <laughs> How quaint! It's just the darndest little thing, I tell you. <laughs> Seriously. Anyways. No. Watch that show. I'll keep making references until you do. You know this. I know you will. You probably have, and I, I just breeze right by him. Exactly. So, the region of Gévaudan is approximately the size of a lion's territory. So, like I said, that's a bit of a matchup there. And this also wouldn't be the first time a lion has killed many people. The Lions of Savo were responsible for the deaths of between 40 is the most accurate description, but some people put it at about 100. This was a pair of lions that killed 40 to 100 people in the span of just a year. And this is documented. This happened like in the modern era. There were railroad workers going through. Where is this? Where were these lions located? It was in Africa. It was a uh, like transcontinental railroad that is being built and they were attacking and killing the workers. I think a lot of the attacks were the workers were passed out because of like 
heat exhaustion, and the lions would just eat them and kill them. Well, damn. Okay. So we already have a documented case of them doing this. We have scientific proof that lions can, in fact, eat people. And like I said, it does match up with some of the descriptions. So I think striped hyena and lion is a possibility. The last theory that I consider plausible. But again, based on some of these descriptions, it sounds like Daenerys Targaryen is riding Drogon in and eating a bunch of French peasants. Some of them, but we do have an average idea. We can look at what is most consistent and kind of piece it together. And that's what most people did. And with the drawings, it generally looks canine in nature, but they're all kind of mixed with other bits of animals. Because keep in mind, people don't really have great references if you're an illustrator for a newspaper. So you're kind of mixing in whatever bit of beast you know of. Okay, but like... How common were the descriptions of the beast with scales or looking dragon? I only saw one with scales. And even then, I think it was just a very period drawing. Like, you can uh, tell, okay. like, this was, like, not a modern drawing. <laughs> all right. All right. The last theory that I consider somewhat plausible is that it was actually a serial killer. Go on. Well... What this is like the most obscure, but what if it was just a person killing people and chopping heads off and everything else was just a random wolf attack? So one theory that I read said that someone had trained hunting dogs and they were killing people for fun. Okay, they did have leather dog armor at the time, and that would have been a rusted color and it would have given them a bit of a humped back. So maybe these were armored hunting dogs that were killing people. It could also explain why they su- were supposedly able to take a couple bullets. Because when the French army came in, apparently they were shooting and either missing or the beast was unfazed. Some claim that Jean Chastel, the guy that killed the beast, was actually the killer. But this is mainly in pop culture and movies. Yeah, yeah. Is there any actual evidence that links him to any of the killings? No, no, there's nothing at all other than he lived in the region. But guess what? So did other people. Right, right. Yeah. And the last theories, which just now are some say it was an extinct species of animals, such as a hyena don or a cave lion, which would have been large carnivorous mammals. I think hyena don would extinct 20 million years ago, something like that. And while they did exist in the region, you know, you'd have to have a small population of them throughout all of known history for them to still be around then. You know, they can't just live underground. Yeah, and they'd be more inbred than West Virginians by that point. Yeah, pretty much. And there's no archaeological evidence in the modern era for these guys. Another one is that it was actually a thylacine or a Tasmanian tiger. Which is extinct nowadays, but it was alive back then. It was extinct in the 30s. And somehow it came to the French countryside? Like I said, French aristocrats would just bring over wild animals for private zoos. It wasn't that uncommon a practice. But were there any reports of those Tasmanian tigers being imported into France? Uh, No, but I doubt any of this was legal. And I mean, like, you'd be hard-pressed to find, like, an official ledger still around today. Yeah, and I mean... I, I guess even today, like, Tiger King became a thing, so... Yeah, people find ways. 
Uh, I will say Tasmanian Tigers, they actually do look just like a dog for the most part, except the color is off. So it would kind of match the description given. However, they've been extinct for a long time. They don't have a history of being aggressive towards people. So I think this one's pretty much debunked. Yeah, I agree with you. That That's probably the least plausible of any of the theories you've put forth. Oh, no. Of course, there's a couple tinfoil hapwares that claim is a werewolf. And you know, there's been so many werewolf movies and books based off of this. Yeah, you just got Ramus Lupin out here killing all the French peasants. Harry Potter now. Uh, I know Lupin means wolf and... Oh, yeah, he was the... I saw a movie a long time ago. Anyways, so my personal theory is that it was just a lot of wolves. It was just a somewhat worse year and there's a lot of hysteria around it. And the newspapers and press ran wild. However, I do think that there could have been a hyena spotted in the area. Because like I said, there was reports of one being shot. So I think a hyena could have also been shot and people said, oh man, this was it the whole time. And they hadn't seen anything like it before. So that's my personal theory is kind of a merging of the two ideas. Okay, but like, I, I still think the wolves are probably the more plausible idea because... Most people say the wolves. It's just odd that how they don't match any of the physical descriptions for the most part. That's where like the wolf-dog hybrid can somehow support the theory a little more, which might explain why they don't look wolf-like. But then again, you also have to like take into account what you said earlier about people undergoing trauma and how that can affect their account of what happened. Yeah, and absolutely. how they can exaggerate certain things. Like, we have people out here drawing scaly lizards. <laughs> okay, know, like... to my to my knowledge, that was like one newspaper. And like I said, that was just how drawings were at the time. They weren't great. The, the person that drew it might have not even seen a wolf before. You know, it was for a newspaper. So drawings back then were just horrifically inaccurate? Yeah, actually, even when the wolf was shot and stuffed and put in the royal palace, there's a drawing of that. It has like human feet, a long tail, and its head looks like a crocodile. What the hell? And that one we know was a wolf. The first one shot was definitely a wolf. Maybe a weird hybrid. They just didn't draw things well. That's that's it. So yeah, I personally think it is kind of a merger of two ideas. I think just a lot of wolves, public hysteria, stress from the war, and then one invasive species that got spotted and chain reaction they all merge together okay so you've presented a bunch of different hypotheses and you think that it is a combination of a few of them well with how many attacks there were it is impossible for it to be just one animal okay that that does make sense yeah it had to be multiple animals at least if you think they're all wolves sure of course but i think it's definitely possible that one or two people were attacked and saw an animal that was not a wolf i I'm putting the most information based off of the confirmed autopsies of the dead animals. And like I said, the uh, the second one that was shot by Chastel, which wasn't fully identified, that was, it had four less teeth than a wolf. Not that they were missing, like they just were not there. Okay, but maybe, like, maybe that was just a wolf that had been to the orthodontist, man. Like, I don't know. <laughs> he got his wisdom teeth out. Yeah, exactly. It was on all kinds of painkillers. Who knows what it was capable of? Yeah, I think because of the inconsistencies with 
records, the fact that we don't have the bodies anymore, and kind of a lack of science overall. Well, we're, we're never really going to know for sure. That Yeah, that's probably true. I will say that it is definitely fun to speculate. It is so much fun to speculate. I I knew this would be a perfect Halloween episode. Yeah, I, that, was, episode. that was a And I will choice. say, if you want to read more about this, people have written so many books speculating on what it is, historical accounts. Everyone seems to have their own answer. And of course, there's God knows how many shitty movies about werewolves in France. You'd think they'd all be in London. Ow! <laughs> and yeah, that's my piece. Alright, so we're moving on to my topic now. So, I'm not going to lie, this topic came pretty pretty easily to me when I was thinking about researching a Halloween episode to the point where I was actually afraid that you would pick this topic. And I'm glad you didn't, because it would have made this episode a lot different than it is yeah we are we came close to picking the same topic once already <laughs> we really did i hope that doesn't happen again because that episode will basically just have to scrap entirely <laughs> like i don't know how that's gonna work if it ever does happen but oh, we could just double day. down on it i guess whatever one person doesn't cover it the other will we could. We could just be like, no, you're wrong. I read from this source at this website that you're... That at you're... that point, it just becomes a debate, and I know you love those. Oh, I do. Okay, now I, I take it back. I'm actually looking forward to the day <laughs> when this happens. All right, what you got for me? So I have chosen to talk about a very classically spooky animal that has inspired a lot of horror movies and a lot of Halloween media, and it is the vampire bat. Beautiful choice. Exactly. That was Because my... this one actually exists. It really does. It's real. And I think I'm not I'm not sure how most people feel about vampire bats. They're probably afraid of them. But I don't know. I'm, I'm unsure about how to feel about them because they have some really cool things about them. But on the other hand, there are some less appealing aspects to vampire bats. But we'll get into all that. But before I do, I do want to give a shout out to Dr. Robert J. Baker and Dr. Caleb D. Phillips at Texas Tech because they do a lot of work on vampire bats and their and their work that they've published was the basis of a lot of the research that I did for this episode. So I want to give them a quick shout out and say that they've done a really good job learning about these animals. And I hope that they continue their work and that we learn more about vampire bats through the work that they do. Um, I would also like to shout out the beast of Jevedon <laughs> for uh, killing those people. So I have a topic because now I feel bad for not shouting out to anybody. Uh <laughs> <sighs> Anyway, but let's get into it. So, a lot of people have probably heard of vampire bats in one way or another, whether it's in, you know, a scientific sense or whether it's in some form of media and they're not sure exactly how real they are, but they are real and they are really appropriately named. But I don't think that they're quite as monstrous as a lot of people would believe. Overall, I actually think they're really fascinating little animals and I really enjoy learning more about them. Like, this is one of the most fun. Uh, episodes I've ever had to research. I had a great time doing this. So what exactly are vampire bats? Well, they're basically little tiny flying mice that have evolved to feed exclusively on blood. There are three uh, extant species of vampire bats, all of which live in Central and South America. They're kind of in the weirdos of their... So uh, U.S. listeners, if there's a bat in your house, it's not going to suck your blood. It, it will not do that. Um, all the bat species it's just as scared it no it's more scared than you it wants to get the hell Any out bat of there species that are found 
in the United States are almost certainly not vampire bats. There have been like one or two sightings of a vampire bat in Texas, but that'd be kind of right on the edge of exactly. That's very uncommon. So if you're in the vast majority of the United States or Europe or pretty much anywhere else in the world, except for Central and South America. If you see a bat... Oh, you guys are screwed down there. <laughs> yeah, if you see a bat anywhere that isn't Central or South America, you can assume that it's not going to suck your blood. And it, that it. You think the cartels <laughs> are killing people down there? It's a vampire well, bat. I don't think it's the vampire bats either. If it's not the cartels, <laughs> I don't know what's going on. But it's it's probably not the vampire bats. And we'll talk about that as, as I get more into the episode. If you see a bat pretty much anywhere else in the world, it's fine. It's more definitely more scared of you than you are of it and they're actually really beneficial because they eat mosquitoes and pollinate plants and perform a lot of really valuable ecological services and remember if the homeowners association is getting on your nerve you can build a bat house in your backyard and they can't touch it because they're federally protected (laughs) you know you're not wrong about that if they're arguing about the size of your shrubs or your lawn having too many dandelions in them, that's the ultimate power move. Just start building your bat house. They can't touch it. And then you can put it. vampire bats in the bat house and train them to only attack your unwanted visitors. There we go. That problem just solves itself pretty much. And then the HOA will never come and talk to you again. <laughs> no one will. Your vampire bats killed them all. <laughs> well, only the guests you don't want around. Yeah, good luck training them. Vampire bats are pretty smart. They can figure it out. Anyway, but I I like to think of vampire bats as kind of like the weirdos amongst bats because there are only three species of them and they're the only ones that have evolved to feed exclusively on blood. All the rest of them. That's pretty rare, isn't it? It is. There aren't really that many species of animal that are purely sanguivores. Vampire bats are really, really unique in that regard. Even animals like mosquitoes will feed on other things besides blood whereas vampire bats that's all they eat they just go and suck blood off of you know livestock chickens birds um yes occasionally people although it's very rare but they're basically like the little emo subgroup of bats you know they're like that they're like those cousins at the family gathering that got really into Satanism and just kind of hang out in the corner wearing their chokers and, you know. Oh, man, I was thinking just My Chemical Romance. <laughs> yeah, they listen to way too much My Chemical Romance. And Actually, the cool thing about them is all bats echolocate, right? But if you look and listen really closely to them, you can hear them say, Cut my life into pieces. This <laughs> is my last resort. And they're... As they're flying around. <laughs> that, that's how they do it. And if you're being hunted by a vampire bat, right before it bites you, you just hear, When I was a young boy. <laughs> That's how you know you're screwed. Anyway, but yeah, vampire bats also aren't that big. I described them as little tiny flying mice. They're only two to three inches long. They weigh maybe an ounce, an ounce and a half. So any images that people might have of like, you know, flying cats coming to suck all of your blood aren't accurate they're totally unrealistic cats can't fly i've seen bigger mosquitoes in florida than than vampire bats and that's only a slight exaggeration (laughs) only a slight one and if you're in florida you know exactly what i'm talking about (laughs) but the fact remains that vampire bats do suck blood um which as i said are almost always mammals or cows or livestock or roosting birds Um, and they have been known to feed on humans very rarely And they tend to find their victims by listening, as pretty much all other bats do that are predatory. But they listen for very different things. 
like most other predatory bat species will find their prey by echolocating and doing that sort of thing and like listening for you know the beat of their wings or just like their actual position what are the vampire bats listening for hemophiliacs (laughs) yeah they're just targeting the russian royal family oh man i I cut my hand again how does that keep happening yeah that's the the bats are just cupping their ears again a little closer what'd you say (laughs) yeah that's the part of the russian revolution that the history textbooks don't talk about the Bolsheviks just imported a whole bunch of vampire bats, and that's how they took down the last of the czars. That's how. That's all Rasputin did. He just ran around with like a towel and went, "Get out of here! Get out of here!" <laughs> <laughs> he just had a giant mist net that he was running around the palace with, just getting all the vampire bats out. Uh, we should probably note the Russian royal family was known to suffer from hemophilia, which is when your blood does not clot properly, so it just tends to bleed out. We, we should actually explain that reference. Well, I don't bother explaining any of my Game of Thrones references. Yeah, so. but I can brush by them. We both agreed on this one. I went off tangent with it. <laughs> we might as well, like, elaborate. Okay, I guess that's fair. Anyway, vampire bats actually have a region in their brain which is designed to detect the slow, rhythmic sound of an animal sleeping. So, basically, they're listening for your breathing while you're asleep which has a different rhythm than when you're awake. Oh, well, that is cool. Yeah. So, like I said, they're listening for something totally different than a lot of other predatory bat species. And once they find a victim, they'll land near them and then climb up onto their body. Um, They do this using specially adapted thumbs and hind legs that make them really agile crawlers, and they can actually run on the ground, which a lot of other bat species can't do. And they can also jump straight up in the air. Um, they're really agile little bastard. I've seen them. They kind of hop around, don't they? Yeah. Yeah. They're, they're really good at moving on the ground, which is really unusual among bats. It's almost kind of frog like in motion. Yeah. Yeah, it is. Which is odd. I don't know how I would expect them to move around, but like a bird, it just lands and walks on its legs. Oh, bats. They, they just kind of, you know, holy smokes. They're all terrain. You know, they're kind of hobbling about. Yeah, yeah, exactly. They're, this, again, is why they're so small and why you don't see very large species of vampire bats, because eventually they have to crawl up onto a sleeping victim. And if they were large, they would get noticed really quickly. But because they're so small and weigh so little, they pretty much go undetected. So once they're on top of their victim, they actually have little pit organs near their nose that they use to detect blood flow beneath the skin. And then once they find a good spot to bite, they will make a small little incision using really, really sharp teeth that they have. And their teeth are so sharp that they can actually make an incision on their victim without the victim even knowing knowing at all. Like, you know, people have talked about doing demonstrations on like knife safety. Oh, you'll cut yourself with this knife and you won't even know it. You know, I think I'll see the blood. Personally, that's just me. <laughs> Probably. <laughs> but that's actually what vampire bat teeth are like. They're designed to be that sharp. And they don't actually have any enamel on their teeth. So uh, most teeth have an enamel coating that protects the tooth from you know wear and tear as you're chewing various different kinds of food. But because vampire bats pretty much just use their teeth to you know, make a little incision on their victims, and they don't actually do any chewing... You know, they don't need the enamel, and so all it does is blunt their teeth. 
So they've evolved. Yeah, that makes sense. To just totally get rid of it, and their teeth are that much sharper for it. That's a really interesting adaptation. It is. Actually, um, there are a whole bunch of things that vampire bats have just totally done away with that a lot of other bats have. Um, just genes that are totally inactive in vampire bats relative to their, you know, very similar frugivore or insectivore cousins. And these adaptations or loss of adaptations um, have benefited them in their diet and their way of life as blood feeding organisms. Anyway, so once they make the cut, obviously it starts bleeding and then the bat will use a special grooved tongue to lap up the blood that starts flowing from the wound. That way it's much more efficient. So instead of like a dog tongue that kind of like wraps or like scoops up and wraps around whatever it's trying to drink, they're like two little straws almost on a vampire bat tongue that allow it to, yeah, they that allow it to like, you know, trap and capture and then suck in the blood as it's flowing from the wound. Um, and this, do you think that's how vampires would do it? <laughs> with a specially designed tongue. Well, have you seen the show The Strain? No. I, I really like the show. The vampires all are like, they're infected by parasitic worms. So it's not like Twilight vampires. And they have a giant worm that shoots out of their mouth, latches onto like a vein, and it actually sucks blood. Huh. But it makes you think like in Twilight, they just have fangs. It doesn't say how they do it. So in theory, they have to bite and then they're just kind of like, you know, they're just licking it as it drizzles down the side. Yeah. Yeah. I will say that relative to vampire bats, the va- the vampires in most other movies and TV shows that I've seen just fucking suck. They have. Well, yeah, that's that's how they get the blood. Stop it. Stop it. That was terrible. <laughs> All right, you walked into that one. That was yeah. Terrible. Show me the tongue adaptations of modern day vampires. That's what I want to see. I agree. I think that modern day vampire adaptations should really go all out and focus on how vampire and focus on the whole process of blood sucking the way that vampire bats do. And with all the adaptations that are necessary that vampire bats have. Oh, so they have to be tiny too. Yes. (laughs) They can be like little vampire fairies. Can you imagine how (laughs) awesome that would be? Imagine twilight and the vampires come out and they're all like eight inches tall. (laughs) <laughs> or like or like a different version <laughs> or just like um a different version of peter pan where tinkerbell is surrounded by all these little vampires that are flying around <laughs> it was peter just run around with a towel whacking them too or they have to get <laughs> rasputin in for that one well no they just have the rasputin is in the original movie he's just called captain hook oh okay so there you go Anyway, but another another thing that's really, really worth noting is the actual saliva of the vampire bat, because there are a lot of really cool adaptations that are going on here with their mouth juices, and it contains, in particular, two very special enzymes. The first one is actually a painkiller that helps uh, the bat's cut remain undetected. Well, at least they're considerate. Yeah, exactly. I mean, they're more considerate for their own safety than they are with, you know, the well-being of their victim but you know it is kind of nice of them the second though is also really cool because it is an anticoagulant that is very similar to the one used by leeches when they also suck blood yeah that's what i was going to mention exactly this enzyme has actually undergone a process 
an evolutionary process known as gene recruitment, where genes that have evolved for one purpose are then repurposed for a different function. Um, so this particular enzyme was originally present in blood and is present in human blood too, to keep it from clotting in veins, you know, as it just moves throughout the body, because otherwise the natural clotting properties of blood would take over and your body would kind of self-destruct. But around, you know, a cut or a wound, there are cells that will remove this enzyme, um, this anticoagulant that allows the blood to clot around your wound and eventually for the wound to heal. However, in vampire bats, this enzyme is also present in their saliva. So that way, when they make an incision on their victim, the blood just keeps flowing and flowing and flowing instead of clotting. So this way, they are able to feed more on the blood instead of having to make, you know, multiple cuts or having to reopen the same cut. They can just kind of feed where they are without the wound starting to heal and close up. What's really interesting here is that this enzyme could also have medical applications in humans, too. Because That's what I was going to say. Exactly. Because vampire bat saliva in preliminary studies has been shown to help prevent blood clots in the brain that can lead to strokes. Oh, that's not what I was thinking at all. Okay. <laughs> that's what I found in my research. What were you going to say? I, I know medicinal leeches are still used sometimes for one purpose only. And that is if you have a finger that has been reattached, like you cut it off. You don't want the blood to all pool as the veins reform. So sometimes they'll get leeches to suck to remove blood and use the anticoagulants. Med medicinal leeches were used for a lot of other things. Largely, they don't work. But that is one purpose that they can still be used for today. I was thinking we just get tiny little vampire bats <laughs> and uh, <laughs> we can just hold them above your finger and almost use them like little pliers. Make an incision. <laughs> And then uh, lap up the blood. Yeah, that, that went in a very different direction than I was going to go. Yeah, I did. I thought you were going <laughs> to... I thought you meant legit using the vampire bat, not just like an enzyme from their saliva. Nope. Nope. Just... <laughs> These neurologists are basically just taking the spit from vampire bats and using it to prevent strokes. Oh my god, that's like the plot of Morbius. <laughs> <laughs> it's Morbin time, guys. No, that it's like no minus the brain plot thing. That is the plot of Morbius. <laughs> I guess so. I know very little about that movie aside, aside from Jared Leto and that one awful fucking line. That's pretty much all I know. I don't. I know nothing <laughs> about that movie. Anyway, so once they've made the incision, that is painless, and the bat will then drink the blood for about twenty minutes. Depends on, you know, give or take. Sometimes it takes longer, sometimes it takes shorter. Um, generally, the bats need about two tablespoons of blood per day, which is a lot when you consider the size of the bat. And they can't survive more than two or three days without feeding. So this sounds like a lot, but when you consider that most of the blood is just plasma or water, the actual nutrients that they're getting from the blood are very diluted. So they need a lot of it relative to their body size. Yeah, I was going to ask how nutritious blood is. So, it actually is relatively nutritious. Um, the main thing that they have to deal with is actually an extreme surplus of iron. So, you know, there's a lot of iron in blood relative to most of the other foods you eat. If I remember correctly, this is another one of the genes that they've lost. 
They've lost the ability to take in a lot of iron in the same way that other bat species and most other mammals do, you know, through their intestines and their digestion and so forth. So basically they wind up losing a lot of the iron that is present in the blood and really, you know, only taking up what they need. Well, I think I know where evolution screwed up because they could just put that iron in the teeth and then they could have scalpel teeth. See, I feel like that's wrong, but I don't know about enough about like blacksmithing to dis to you know disagree with you. It's like from it's always sunny. You know, I think that sounds wrong, but I don't know enough about science to argue that. Exactly. I don't I don't know enough about actually sculpting iron to know if that would work. I just know that think it probably about it. wouldn't. If we do that and we give them the scalpel teeth, then they're just perfect as surgeons. Like they could just you have a little bat go all the way up your chest, make the incision. Great. Now the doctor can go in there and do what they got to do. I guess, but you need a lot of bats because generally vampire bats don't make a very large cut. Oh, we'll train them. We'll train them. <laughs> or you'll just get a lot of them. There's just a lot of them and hope, hope they do what you want. <laughs> uh, anyway, so after the 20 minutes are up, the bat is done feeding, and after you're done feeding, you need to fly away. You need to go back to your to your roost. The issue is that the bat has basically just consumed about half of its body weight worth of blood. So if you're a flying animal, that much weight added to your body is going to cause a lot of problems. So you need to find a way to get rid of a lot of the weight. So how do you, how do, you do that? This isn't a rhetorical question, Aaron. How do you think they do it? I'm guessing they're either pissing or shitting. Damn straight. They're pissing all over the place. (laughs) They are pissing everywhere. Another adaptation I hope vampires develop (laughs) in modern day media. (laughs) (laughs) I'm just imagining like... (laughs) After they've bitten and just lapped up the blood from your wound for 20 minutes they run down the hallway pissing on all the furniture that's how you know you've had one in your house i'm just imagining the club from like blade that has three bathrooms you know a male a female and then a vampire bathroom with a super long line coming out of it because all these vampires (laughs) just really gotta piss all the time (sighs) anyway so yeah they start urinating like crazy and, and then eventually they shed a lot of the weight and they're ready to take off. Um, this is also where their really powerful legs come into play because they can jump straight up into the air instead of just using their wings. And they're really good at crossing them in case there's no bathroom nearby. <laughs> <laughs> they can hold it for a long time. Yeah, they're really good at doing the pee-pee dance. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so eventually once they get up in the air, they return to their roosts. And this is where we come to the really to another really cool part of vampire bat life, which is their social lives. So vampire bat roosts are actually segregated by sex. Males and females will roost separately. Um, That's not very progressive. It's not. It really isn't. But within their roosts, they're very social. Well, at least the females are. Female bats will groom each other to strengthen social bonds, a lot like some species of monkeys do. And the other really cool thing is that in female bat roosts, 
if some females were unsuccessful in their nightly, you know, voyage for blood, other females might even regurgitate blood to fellow females to make sure that, you know, they stay alive and can go on. Because as I said earlier, vampire bats really need to feed every two or three days. So an unsuccessful feeding night is really bad news. But because of the extreme social bonds formed by vampire bats, they're able to sometimes rely on their roost mates for food, which is a really extremely rare example of reciprocal altruism in the animal kingdom. This is a phenomenon that really doesn't exist anywhere else or is very rare in other animal families and other species. Usually there's some kind of self-interest associated with doing something for another organism or another individual. Whereas in vampire bats, they just kind of give each other food with no real guarantee that that favor will eventually be returned. Another adaptation that modern day vampires need to have. <laughs> exactly. They go back to their, uh, <laughs> their single gender dorms and it's like, well, I didn't get anything. <laughs> just open up and baby bird it to them. Yeah, I just really want Edward to go vomiting blood on the rest of the Volturi. <laughs> and I hate that I know enough about Twilight to know those two terms. I did not know the second one. I know it takes place in the town of Forks. I did not know that, actually. I, Do I vampire was... bats also like to play baseball? <laughs> I, I don't know. Does the Beast of Givaldon like to run around shirtless wearing jean shorts? <laughs> we can't rule that out as a possibility. <laughs> Anyway, but this kind of gets to the point that I was making earlier where there are there's definitely a softer side to vampire bats. You know, they have this really unique charitable bond with uh, with each other that is really rare and isn't present in other animals. So, like, when you compare this shit with, like, penguins, which who we find very cute and cuddly, or most people do, not at all monstrous and not at all demonized, in spite of the fact that penguins will actually push each other off of ice flows and basically right into the jaws of a waiting leopard seal just so <laughs> they themselves don't get eaten. Like, we don't, we kind of forget about that when we talk about penguins. But, you know, so penguins are very unaltruistic, but vampire bats are totally altruistic. And we demonize vampire bats and kind of, you know, adore penguins. So the point that I'm getting at is that nature isn't really so black and white as we sometimes make it out to be. I got to Google something real quick. Okay, go ahead. Okay, so I was trying to see if the concept of vampires predated the discovery of vampire bats. Okay. When were they? Well, I, I know like indigenous people always knew about them, but vampires were like a European culture thing. So when were they like officially described? I don't know. Yeah, I was wondering if, like, the vampires influenced the bats or the other way around. That's a really good question that I don't know the answer to. According to Wikipedia, the word vampire dates to 1688. Although I think the actual vampire might be older than that. Possible. I'm, I'm not sure. Okay, Mes Mesopotamia, ancient Greeks, yeah, they all talked about precursors to vampires. All right, okay. So I want to say the idea of the vampire originated around like Europe, 
uh, Middle East area before the knowledge of the vampire bat. So that's kind of cool. The other thing about vampire bat social life is that female vampire bats are also great mothers. So they raise their young actually beyond when they're fully grown, which takes only five months. And uh, baby vampire bats will continue continue to nurse from their mothers until they are nine months old. This means that the child bat has reached adulthood almost twice over when it finally stops breastfeeding from the female. I don't want to see that in modern day vampire depictions. That one we can leave behind. I agree. Where you can see a depiction <laughs> that is somewhat similar to that is in Game of Thrones with Robin Aaron. And you... You're trying to promote the show with this? 100%. Because there is like a little... Well, he's he, Because it's very tasteful the way it's he's done. He's like a sixth grader in the show, or in most of the show, who, yeah, is still like breastfeeding and it's pretty gross. Yeah, but, wow. Oh boy, <laughs> I'm going to watch this one. I'm just saying, we consider that to be pretty gross in the show, but yet vampire bats are still out here, you know, still suckling on nipples when they're basically like 32 years old in human years now i don't feel bad for living at home exactly yeah i mean it could be a lot worse for your parents you could still be you know you could still be feeding on breast milk yeah i didn't really want to say it i, <laughs> I thought it was just implied neither of us had to say yeah but i don't know i guess i'm that guy right now i'm just gonna go ahead and say <laughs> it. hey mom dad all i'm saying is at least I'm not a vampire bat, am I right? Let me just stay in the basement a couple more months. I'll find the job. Exactly. My SoundCloud's taken off. <laughs> yeah, pretty much. That's, that's exactly how it's how it should go. Anyone who's, who's listening to this podcast from a basement of some sort, that's the argument you should go with. At least you're not a vampire bat. It could be a lot worse. Um. <laughs> At least I'm not breastfeeding. Pretty much. Pretty much. <laughs> I have never once asked you to regurgitate blood into my mouth, so <laughs> consider yourself lucky. Let's luck. just keep things simple. Consider yourself lucky. <laughs> I still don't need to pay a rent. Vampire Bat does also pose a lot of interesting evolutionary questions. Because you know, how did these th three species of bat come to feed exclusively on blood? And so the prevailing theory is that it seems to have only evolved once. Studies indicate that the three vampire bat species are all descended from the same common ancestor. And so the theory around vampire bat evolution that I agree that I seem to think is most believable because like the beast of Jean Vendant, it's still being debated among scientists. The idea is that the ancestors of vampire bats were insectivores that targeted parasites which were feeding on large mammals and birds. So they were already eating a lot of blood because these were blood-sucking insects. And so over time, they kind of just cut out the insect in the middle and just started feeding directly on blood. That's still a big jump. It is and it isn't. Because, like, if you consider a bat species that is just feeding on insects... It's a much larger jump for that bat species to go from feeding on moths and flies to feeding on blood. Whereas if it was feeding on ticks and mosquitoes that are already on the animal, they already have to have some of the infrastructure in place in their bodies to process the blood that's inside 
those insects. Oh, so it was like it was like crawling around on them, kind of like an ox pecker. Exactly. Exactly. Okay, I see that. Yes, that makes more sense. Right. And so eventually... I thought it was just feeding on mosquitoes that had already fed on animals, like uh, in the air. Oh, yeah, no. These were... They were already feeding on, you know... They were basically using the bodies of sleeping animals as and don't oxpeckers also... Oh, sorry, I cut you off. Well, yeah, they were just using... I was just saying the, the theory is that they, these were bats that were using the bodies of sleeping animals as feeding grounds for, you know, ticks, mosquitoes, flies, those sorts of things, and then eventually moved on to just feeding on blood. Okay, so at one point, it might have been like a mutualist relationship where the bat gets to eat the ticks and the animals get their ticks removed. And then the bat's like, mm, why don't we just cut out the middleman? Yeah, yeah, pretty much. I I like to think of it as someone who spent years and years and years eating cake, only to realize that the part of the cake they really like is the icing, so they just did, they just started eating icing. <laughs> I thought you were going to say the part of the cake they like was the chef. <laughs> no. <laughs> no, I wasn't going to go there. Um, I was going to... Yeah, I took that in a very different direction. Yeah. Or, like, someone at a snack bar who's realized that... That salad that they're eating is made delicious by the dressing, so they just start chugging dressing instead of, you know, also eating <laughs> all the vegetables and leafy greens. And so now we have vampire bats who are the critters who have learned to live off of salad dressing. That's really cool. And I wonder why it hasn't evolved again, because bats are found on every continent except Antarctica. Yeah, and these are, again, these are really interesting questions that are still being really hotly debated among a lot of scientists. I just kind of picked out the theory that I find most agreeable. No, that one does make sense. I guess it's just one of those things where eh, it just happened once. Yeah. Evolution does not always work within reason. There are plenty of scenarios where it just happened. Yeah, yeah, and the other thing, too, is that there are a lot of other adaptations that had to take place, or a lot of other adaptations that had to come along with the decision to feed on blood. Like, blood isn't your typical, a very typical food source, so you have to have a lot no, of other not. adaptations that go along with that particular behavior. So, it does kind of make sense that it's only evolved once, because of all the other adaptations that had to go along with it. You know, like you have to have the specialized teeth and the forelimbs and the legs and the special digestive system and the enzymes and all these other things that make vampire bats successful that maybe aren't present in other species that could potentially develop these behaviors. And if they did develop these behaviors without these adaptations, they would fail. Mm-hmm. Still makes you wonder, do any birds do this? Um, not to my knowledge. So like you mentioned oxpeckers, and that is kind of mm -hmm. an inspiration for the ancestors of vampire bats. Um, and oxpeckers, um, but to my knowledge, they don't typically feed directly on blood. They're more targeting the ticks and other parasites that are on large mammals. Um, so they're still kind of in that intermediate phase of vampire bat evolution. So if that one theory of evolution of vampire bat evolution holds true, then 
it does make sense that eventually, like in a few million years, you could wind up with blood-sucking oxpeckers, but it seems really unlikely to me because of a, a lot of adaptations that vampire bats have that oxpeckers have yet to develop. And I also wonder, so vampire bats, you said they're the size of a mouse. Roughly, yeah. I wonder if they were adapted to feed on megafauna. I don't know how old they are, but my idea is like avocados is thought that they were fed on by giant ground sloths because there's really nothing alive today besides people that can eat an avocado whole and pass the seed through their digestive system. Okay. Well, no, people don't eat it whole. Uh, we, we have to cut it up and we don't eat the seed. But the idea is that they were Wait, large shit, mammals. Shit, we're not supposed to be eating those seeds? <laughs> You're going to be so bound up. God, Imagine passing that thing through. God damn it, I got to start taking a lot of laxatives. <laughs> so I wonder if these bats also adapted to feed on large mammals that maybe aren't around anymore. Like, didn't you say they feed mainly on cattle? So it depends on the species. Much like a lot, much like the rest of the animal kingdom, they have kind of split up into different niches. One species will specialize in, you know, say cows, and another species will have a different specialization in birds. Um, so they look for different types of victims. Um, but yeah, generally it's large mammals, cows, birds. They're actually one of the few mammal species that has been designated as a pest because of their impact on livestock. What about mice? Well, I said one of the few. Rats? Again, one of the few. The, I mean, cats, depending on who you're there, asking. There are a lot of different mammal species, man. Hell, I'd even put people in there. Okay, but people aren't going to designate other people as pests, generally. I would. I've met plenty <laughs> Be that as it may, they're still in the minority. <laughs> Actually, there have been a lot of instances where people think they're targeting vampire bat roosts and they're just using explosives to kill all the bats and they're actually instead killing, you know, insectivores and frugivores. So a lot of the vampire bat rage gets misdirected at other species. What was your original question? I forget. Oh, I had asked if they were adapted to feed on megafauna that maybe aren't alive anymore. Um, it's possible. Because, like, if that thing was feeding on something the size of an elephant, like, there's no way in hell that elephant's gonna notice. So, again, it's possible, but I don't see it as particularly... I mean, even if that was originally the case, they seem to do fine feeding on the large mammals that are present in their yeah, natural Yeah, I didn't habitat. know if they were threatened or if their populations were shrinking. Nope, they're doing just fine. Oh, good for them. Yeah, exactly. Not so great for all the cattle farmers in Central and South America, but good for the bats. Do they impact it really that much? Sometimes they do. Oh. Um, because it's not like they're taking like a mosquito's amount of blood. You know, like you get bit by a mosquito, the most annoying part of it is a little itchy bump on your leg. Vampire bats are taking a significantly more amount, a significantly greater amount of blood. Um, So... It's a much larger impact. So if you have a large population of vampire bats around, it can really do some damage. And so, yeah, that, that's that's why they've been designated as pests in certain areas. Oh, well, that's not great. I thought they were, like, fully innocent and we were just... Oh, no, no, no. I, I never said they were fully innocent. I said that 
They have a lot of. <laughs> I said they were really, really fascinating, and they are. But they have been known to do. I some thought this damage. was a whole PR thing on why you should like vampire bats. They're gonna say nope. like, "Oh, they're totally misunderstood." I, I never tried to state why they were totally misunderstood. I was mainly just explaining that you know, there's they're not so black and white. There are some you know some good sides to vampire bats. And never be a never be a defense lawyer. You'll talk about why your client <laughs> is a good person and all that, and why the media gets them wrong. And then you end say, but like, but in this case, he definitely did it. Well, <laughs> oh man, he killed the guy. First of all, but he's still a pretty good person. It's a good thing I never have any plans to go to law school because you're probably right. <laughs> <laughs> but I, throughout this whole piece, I mainly just wanted to provide more color to vampire bats um, to give people more background on what they're actually like. And how there are a lot of really cool adaptations associated with them. And it's appropriate given the time of year. But also, it is important to note that they very, very rarely target humans. So people, a lot of times, are scared of vampire bats because they think that they're going to come and suck all their blood. And that's just not the case. Generally, people are most afraid of vampire bats if they have a herd of cattle. And they're afraid of those cattle, you know, suffering some kind of disease or illness. That is, yeah. That, do they transmit diseases? Um, they can. That is a concern oh. with vampire bats. They can transmit rabies, but then again, so can raccoons and possums and things like that. Well, thank God they aren't spreading AIDS. <laughs> <laughs> well, think about it. If you got bit by a vampire bat and they were spreading AIDS, then you could go to a water park and ride all the rides like instantly. <laughs> it's always sunny in Philadelphia. AIDS. I, was I got thinking, AIDS uh... coming through. Oh, there's, I was thinking, there's the needle aids and there and and there and there's the gay aids. I'm a vampire bat guy. I was thinking uh, a sequel to the Dallas Buyers Club, <laughs> <laughs> where they do a crossover with Twilight. <laughs> and like in the middle of the third act, they find a way for the vampires to start spreading the cure. <laughs> <laughs> like oh of course the vampires are accurate in the sense that they're only about four inches (laughs) tall and they have the proper mouth parts to actually suck blood (laughs) that they do but yeah that's so that's those are vampire bats and all right cool they are very i liked it yeah they're really fascinating little animals they're fascinating they're not innocent definitely as you made clear in the end there's a reason that a lot of people think of them as pets I think they're interesting enough to definitely deserve half of a podcast episode. And they don't really attack people. No. That's the key takeaway. Exactly. And for the vast majority of our listeners, you don't have to worry about them. That too. You said they're in Central America? Central and South America, yes. Okay, well, there's one guy in Mexico, so it sucks to be you. Yeah, he's. I guess he's just <laughs> fucked. But all those listeners in Belgium that will stop listening after they hear your French accent... Don't have to worry about being bitten by vampire bats. <laughs> unless uh, unless some really rich French guy took them to a menagerie and then released them. Yeah, I guess. All right, then that's the that's it. That's the piece. Yep. So this was a little intermediate episode. We decided to do it on our own and we didn't announce it. So the episode following this will be the islands episode. Yes. Yes. So we will not be picking a topic today. Well, yeah, we don't have to. You know, it's going to be islands. Yes, it will be. 
All right. Sounds good. A little spooky special for you all. All right. So, Aaron. You want to take us out? No, that's all you, man. What should people do if they like this episode? All right. If you enjoyed this episode, please give us a like and review on your podcast app of choice. And if you have a suggestion for any future episode, you may contact us at Twitter at SoupPotPodcast or on Gmail at ThePrimordialSoupPot at gmail.com. All right. Sounds great. And we will see you next time when we talk about islands. Looking forward to it. See ya. See ya.